All right, well, I'll start with a welcome again. If you are new with us today, uh, welcome. My name is James, and I serve as one of the pastors here at FBC. Uh, today, we are once again in the Gospel of John, and this is our third week in this wonderful book. Uh, and actually, uh, we're still in John's introduction after three weeks. <laughs> uh, John's introduction, his prologue, but we are going to wrap that up today. Uh, if you missed the first two weeks with us, uh, John began his gospel by showing us that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. And that's his sort of thrust right from the start. Jesus is the fully divine Son of God, that Jesus is the pre existent one, that he was with God the Father at the beginning. And then last week, we looked at the incredible truth that Jesus. Jesus is the true light. He is the true light. That Jesus is the illuminator that divides the entire human race into two groups, either receivers or rejectors. There's no in-between. You either accept Jesus as the one who gives life or you reject him. And now today, we're going to finish John's prologue uh, by looking at the truth that Jesus is deity who takes on humanity. Jesus is deity who takes on humanity. And we call this, within Christianity, the incarnation. Okay, that's the theological term for what we're talking about today. The incarnation. The incarnation is one of the most stunning, mysterious miracles that we find in the scriptures. And it is essential, it is central to the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis once called the Incarnation the grand miracle. Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor, said about the Incarnation, he that made man was made man. End of story. So this is where we're headed today. Talking about Jesus, the one who made man, who became man. This is what... John is describing to us or for us in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And this is how this section is laid out, just to kind of give you an overview of where we're heading today. In verse 14, John gives us basically a summary statement of the incarnation. He just gives us this short, matter-of-fact fact, okay, about the incarnation, about who Jesus is and what he did. And then in the verses that follow, there are all these, let's call them Old Testament echoes that show us that Jesus is superior to everything and everyone who has gone before him. That Jesus' glory is greater than the glory of the tabernacle, for example, or that his greatness transcends all who went before him. People like John the Baptist, people like Moses that he provides greater grace than has ever been given before, that he provides the greatest revelation of God you could ever find. And all of these Old Testament echoes collectively brought all together. These references here in John are here to show us the surpassing greatness of the person of Jesus Christ. That's the aim, that Jesus is greater, that he is better. And so let's open up John chapter 1. Again, together, uh, and I'm going to break up today's study into two parts, just two parts. First of all, we're going to consider the word incarnate 
in verse 14, and then we're going to look at the words surpassing excellence in verses 15 through 18. All right, I'll give some concluding thoughts and reflections at the end, but that's going to direct our time together. All right, so let's dive in this, into this together, starting with the word incarnate. Okay, the word incarnate, that's where we're headed. In verse 14, John says this, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. Now, John has mentioned, or excuse me, he has not mentioned this title, word, since the beginning verses of chapter 1. And if you remember back two weeks ago, when John was talking about this word, this title, this designation, uh, we know he was talking about Jesus, about Jesus's eternality specifically, about his essence as God and his pre-existence. But now John provides us with one of the most stunning statements in all of the scriptures because he says, again, the word became flesh. And this is a history altering reality. And it's actually unthinkable. Uh, it's hard to even wrap our imaginations around these words that the creator, the one who made man and woman, became a man himself. But here it is the word God took on flesh. At a point in time, John says, that's actually the verb tense here. It's literally how it would be translated in English. At a point in time, at a point in history, there was a particular time in which deity took on humanity. And it's very important to make note of a few things with this. Okay? Otherwise, uh, we could very easily uh, get off into the wrong direction and, and be led astray. And so, first of all, when it comes to this, we need to understand that in Jesus becoming fully human, he did not lay aside his deity. The way that the early church fathers put it was like this. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Okay? Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. And so don't miss this. This is not a subtraction taking place that we're reading about. This is an addition. He took on, he put on humanity. This means that Jesus' human nature does not overpower his divine nature, and simultaneously, his divine nature does not overpower his human nature. Jesus is mysteriously both and at the same time. He is fully God, fully man, 100%. And it's important to clarify this, because all throughout church history, there's been heresies that have come up teaching against this. Okay? Right from the very start, there were false teachings in the first century that were saying, well, okay, yeah, we accept that Jesus was God. We believe that. But what's true is that he only took on the appearance of becoming a man and having a body. Like in his divinity, he was able to make himself look like he had flesh. But John says, no. This Jesus took on flesh. Okay, flesh. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 
that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He uses those words, actually. In other words, Jesus had fingernails. Jesus got stomach aches. Jesus grew tired. Jesus grew hungry and thirsty. He had everything that it meant to be human except for one thing, sin. Jesus knew no sin. He never sinned. And why? Well, because he was also fully God. (laughs) And listen, I understand, certainly, those of you who might be skeptics, those of you who are sort of seeking, um, at one point I was with you. I understand the tension that lies here. Right? How do we wrap our minds around this, this tension? Fully God, fully man. 100% plus 100% equals 100%. It seems impossible. Uh, But let me really broadly, broadly encourage you with something. I already mentioned Spurgeon. I'll do it one more time. Something that Charles Spurgeon once said. He'd come to a, a point in his life preaching hundreds of sermons, hundreds, walking with Christ for years, trying to figure out all the answers to these questions. And at one point, he sort of just lifted up his hands and he said, whenever I find a mystery in the Bible that I can't resolve, I now do this. I build an altar and worship. Listen, there is truth in the tension. So don't be bothered by it. Let it grow your wonder and your awe. After all, we see tensions like this all throughout the Bible, don't we? And we should be honest about these. Jesus was born of Mary, but at the same time, he was the creator of all things. He he grew in wisdom, but he was all-knowing. He got hungry, but he is the bread of life. His soul was troubled in the garden, like on his knees, like sweating drops of blood. He was so troubled in his spirit, but yet at the same time, he is the prince of peace. He ascends bodily into heaven after his resurrection to go back to be with the Father, but then he tells his disciples, I will be with you always. Jesus, the word, fully divine, fully human, beyond human comprehension. When we could not reach God, we could not do enough to perform for him. We could not pray or fast enough to please him. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The word became flesh. This is at the heart of the gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. I love this. Uh, Another thing that's really easy to to miss here in the English, that word dwell is actually where we get the word tabernacle in the Old Testament. So John is literally saying to us here that Jesus tabernacled among us. It's sort of a, if you're not familiar with a tabernacle, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Tabernacled among us. Well, for the Jewish audience, their ears would have absolutely perked up at hearing these words. See, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was the, uh, the residence, the temporary residence where we know that God lived, dwelt. It's the place where Moses would go and meet with God regularly in the Old Testament. And so catch this now. 
In the Old Testament, if you wanted to meet with God, you went into, you had to go inside of the tabernacle. That's where God's presence was. But now we're being told here by John that if you want to meet with God now, you go to Jesus. He tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Honestly, I almost did an entire sermon on this one verse. I thought you'd throw stones at me. Okay, so I didn't. But this is just so profound. So profound. John says here, when Jesus appeared, understand what took place. He says, when Jesus appeared, the glory of God descended. The glory of God dwelt among us. And John says, interestingly, he says, and we have seen his glory, not in some vague vision, but with real human eyes. And what is he actually getting at with this? Well, you have to understand a bit about God's glory. And so first of all, what is it? What is God's glory? That's a Big thing to define, okay? That's why I told you I almost need a sermon on it. But in the simplest terms I can think of, simplest terms I can think of, God's glory is who he is. But more than that, I think maybe a better way to think of it is God's glory is the sum, the totality of all of his attributes put together. So take all the attributes of God that you can think of. List them out in your mind, and there's infinitely more than what you could think of in the three seconds I just gave you. All those attributes of God in perfect union are his glory. So we know on the other side, when it comes to God's glory, there is a sense in which God's glory is manifested in this blazing light. Okay, we see this throughout the scriptures. We call this the Shekinah, okay, if you want to know the technical term for it in the scriptures, the Shekinah glory. We talked about this actually a few weeks ago in our Behold series to start our new year. Moses saw that glory. He saw the glory of God. He saw the Shekinah, this blazing, beautiful, indescribable light, right, the one that made his face shine. He got a glimpse of the glory of God. It was manifested to him. And then, in a New Testament example, we know that John, the writer of this gospel, he beheld that Shekinah as well. We know that he beheld the glory of God. We'll see this later in John's gospel, like a year from now, in John 17. But Jesus reveals himself to Peter, James, and John in the fullness of his glory up on this mountain. This is unreal. So there is a sense in which John is speaking to that manifestation here in verse 14. We have, with our own eyes, human eyes, we have seen the Shekinah. We have seen the glory manifested to us. We saw Jesus on that mountain in blazing glory. And I wasn't the only one there. Peter and James were there too. You can ask them about it. But it's much more than that, actually. When John says... We have seen his glory. He's not only talking about the representation of that glory in light, 
that physical manifestation, he's also talking about the reality of those attributes of God. All of those attributes of God which were displayed in the life and the person of Jesus. So what John could have actually written to us here, what he could have said was, we have seen God's love. We have seen his mercy. We, we saw his wisdom. We saw his knowledge. We saw his power. We saw his justice. We saw his holiness. We, saw, we, we were witnesses of his compassion. We saw his kindness, his patience. We, we saw it all. We witnessed, saw the glory of God. Why? Because we laid eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory. We saw Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. And do you realize, even reading those words up on the screen there, do you realize how big that statement actually is? Full of grace, full of truth. Because we have to understand this very clearly. God doesn't owe us goodness. We are not entitled to his grace. The reality is we deserve the opposite of grace. John could have said here in the text, Jesus came and he was full of judgment and wrath. And that would have been just. It would have been acceptable. Those of us who know ourselves would have agreed with that. Yeah, it makes sense. Coming to bring that to me. But here's the good news of the gospel. God's glory didn't come to consume us, but to save us. He came in grace. Praise God, he came in grace. Praise God, he came to save us. That's John 3, that he didn't come to condemn, but to save. Grace has supplied everything that we need for salvation. This is the incarnation. You want to wrap up the incarnation? It's this. It's an unparalleled act of grace. That's why Titus says this in Titus chapter 2, referring to the incarnation, actually. He's trying to, like, sort of summarize it. And he just says this. The grace of God has appeared. That's how I would describe the incarnation. It's that simple. Grace has come in a person. Truth has come in a person. We call him Jesus. And he is full, full to the brim with grace and truth. Well, I now want to move from the word incarnate uh, to the second portion of the text that we have before us this morning, which is about the words surpassing excellence. Okay? So we're going to see in the next few verses together. The words surpassing excellence. What we're going to see in the next few verses is John showing us Jesus' superiority to those who went before him and Jesus's superior act of grace. And so first of all, we are brought back to John the Baptist. John, the author of John, says this. John the Baptist bore witness about him, Jesus, the word, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
It's a bit of a tongue twister, right? What in the world is being said there? Jesus who came after me ranks ahead of me. For those of us who grew up in more Western cultures, um, this isn't actually that big of a deal. Um, We don't have this concept of age leading to superiority, right? But our Korean brothers and sisters here, um, they understand this well. You're older, you rank higher. Okay? You honor your elders. And by the way, um, that is actually more Jewish, so they get it more right. I guess. <laughs> but John the Baptist says, actually, that's not the case here. He says, Jesus was born after me, but he's before me or ahead of me. And that's not controversial because Jesus is preexistent, right? So follow me. What John is saying is Jesus, or because Jesus became flesh, it means that he was born after me, my cousin, actually. But because he is also the word, because he was at the beginning with God, because he is God, he's ahead of me. He's superior to me. Okay, you follow that. Born after me, but ahead of me. And there's another reason he's superior to John, and really superior to any man. This is verse 16. It says this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. A lot of grace today. Jesus provides super abundant grace, superior grace, and that makes him superior to John the Baptist. And this is one of those phrases that the English, again, there's a lot we need to study in this text. That's why we've been in the first 18 verses for three weeks, because, again, the English language just, just simply doesn't do justice to what's being said here. Because what John is doing here is picturing, actually, Jesus Christ as this fountain. It's the imagery here. He's like a waterfall of grace. I was going to say like the Niagara Falls, but only like a quarter of you would know what I'm talking about. Research it. This waterfall of grace. He just keeps coming with grace. He's the source of every spiritual blessing. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. It's a grace that keeps on flowing. Actually, literally translated, it says grace instead of grace. So what's for dinner? Grace. Has you got another option? Yeah, we do actually. You want grace? Or instead, you can have grace. That's literally what it's saying. There's just grace on top of grace on top of grace. That's the first course, the second course, the third course, and the fourth. It just keeps coming. I love what one commentator says about this grace upon grace, or this grace instead of grace. He says this, Grace is always an adventure. No one can say where grace will lead, what blessing it will bring, or what challenge it will make for you. Grace means an ever-deepening experience of the presence and blessing of God. Grace and truth has come to us, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Glory be to God for his superabundant grace. 
Well, moving on, John then moves to show us that Jesus is not only superior to John the Baptist, but he's also superior to Moses. And this is a pretty big deal for the Jewish audience. This is verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The simple point here is that Jesus is providing a more excellent way than the way that Moses gave the people. If you recall the Old Testament story and the giving of the law, we know that Moses receives this law from God, the law of God, and he was commissioned to give the law to the people. And if the people followed the law, they were promised that they would flourish. They would live well. And we know that the giving of the law was a great act of grace. Some of us, I think now, especially those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, I think oftentimes when we think of like the Pharisees, um, automatically your mind just went negative. Okay? Um, but these are the people who are trying to uphold the law. These are the, pe- the people group who are trying to do the right thing. They're the people who are so in fear of God that they took the law and built other laws around those laws so that they, they wouldn't offend God. Very religious. Yes, they, they were human, okay? So they failed, but they were trying to do the right thing. The, the law, so when we think of the Pharisees, we also then have this tendency of thinking of the law, and we think of the law as a negative thing. Like, there's all these laws, and people had to keep them, and oh, the law, right? Oh, I'm so glad I wasn't with them. But that's a very, a very wrong way to look at the law. The law was an act of grace. We can't misunderstand that. The law itself, the Old Testament law, was grace. God was very gracious in making a covenant with a people who didn't deserve to be in a relationship with him. He didn't have to give them the law. He didn't have to give them a a pathway to flourishing, to blessing, but he did. And so the problem was not the law itself. The problem was the people. And the problem is always people, isn't it? It's always people. So what John is saying here is that the law had... It was grace, but alongside of the law, it had this anticipatory function to it, this prophetic function, or to make it more simple for you, the law was preparing the way for someone greater. The law was preparing us to see the Savior. It was meant to help us look forward to one who would come and save. The law was never meant to become an end to itself, but it became an end to itself. It was always meant to be a pointer to Jesus Christ. And so as gracious as the law was, more grace came through Jesus. That's what John is saying here. Superior grace. Jesus is superior to Moses or the way of Moses. And then the prologue, John's introduction, closes with verse 18, which says this. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
What a powerful way to close out this section, this introduction, this prologue. And it's actually a very fitting bookend to verse 1. Because many of the same truths that we saw in verse 1 two weeks ago are actually found here as well. John says to us, no one has ever seen God. And of course, we know there were occasions in the Old Testament where people did get, actually did get glimpses of the Lord. They did see him partially. People like Isaiah had the honor and privilege to enter into the throne room, it says. We already mentioned Moses, who begs God, actually, let me see your glory. I need to see your glory. And God is gracious enough to show him just a piece. But these are certainly exceptions. It was extremely rare. And even with that, it is still true that no one, no one saw the fullness of God, right? We're told that if you did, you would die instantaneously. It's too holy. No one has seen God in his full glory. No one can, no one did. But now, but now, John says, we see in Jesus, God's glory has been revealed. He has made him known. Jesus has come to make God known. Now, does that mean that there is nothing to learn about God outside of this incarnation, outside of the word becoming flesh? No, we'll be learning, we know this, we'll be learning about God through eternity. Okay, there's an eternal being, we'll take an eternal, eternal amount of time to understand. But the point John is making is that what you see in the person of Jesus Christ is sufficient. That's really what he's saying. It's enough. Jesus accurately and sufficiently reveals to us the nature of God. Jesus will tell us later in John 6, actually, if you have seen me, what does he say? You have seen the Father. Jesus reveals to us the glory of God. We're back to those attributes Jesus reveals to us the attributes of God. He shows us who the Father is. In fact, the phrase in verse 18, made him known, comes from the word exegesis in Greek. It just so happened that Peter used the word exegesis. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, he already described what it is a little bit. It's that word exegesis. So John is literally saying it's brilliant. It's masterful. Jesus, John is literally saying Jesus Christ is the exegesis of God. Or, in other words, Jesus is the explanation of God. He's the narration of God. Or to use Paul's language again, Jesus is the visible image of the visible, invisible God. Excuse me. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So you want to know God today. You're here and you're curious about him. You want to know who God is, what he's like, his character. John tells us, look to Jesus. Right from the beginning of this book, this is John's incredible, profound message to us. This is what John wants us to know as we read through the rest of this gospel, as we study it together. Jesus shows us who God is. Why? Because he is at the Father's side, we're told there in verse 18, and because he is himself God. 
And what an amazing, what amazing grace that is to us. Jesus has made God known. Well, before we, we wrap up today, uh, I thought it would be helpful uh, to share with you a few concluding reflections in regards to this passage today, but also just holistically to John's prologue, uh, specifically when it comes to this idea of the incarnation. Like, what are the implications of all this? What does this really mean? Particularly to me. <laughs> Why does the word becoming flesh even matter? Why is this significant? And I'll show you a few reasons why. A few reasons why. First of all, first of all, this matters because of salvation. Okay, we'll start there. Salvation. Listen, the, the incarnation highlights our need of divine rescue. It highlights that to us. That if we could save ourselves, if we could achieve right standing with God, we wouldn't need Jesus to become a man to come down and to save us. We cannot save ourselves, and therefore, he came down and took on flesh. Which means Jesus becoming human matters, actually, for our eternal life. Only God could save us. And the good news of the gospel is, we just read it, God came down. This is fulfilling the ancient promise of Genesis 3.15, that one would come eventually to defeat Satan, sin, and death. One would come to rescue and heal the divide that was created between us and the Father, a divide that we caused. And Jesus, we are told here now in John's prologue, Jesus is that rescuer. There is life. There is salvation in his name. The second reason the incarnation matters, identification. Identification. I'm going to give you four words that all end with I-O-N. Identification. Jesus taking on flesh reminds us, it reminds us, at least those of us in the room who are, are struggling Christians, uh, those of us in the room who are, are weak Christians, weak in our faith, all of us, <laughs> that God can sympathize with our weaknesses. And you can't find this, by the way, in any other world religion. You can't. Go and search for yourself. You should. You should. I did. Can't find it. Our God knows human suffering. Not just because he knows everything, he does, but because he actually experienced it for himself. So maybe you're here today, you're here this morning, and you're saying, you know, my life is just so hard right now. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. Maybe you're dealing with unresolved conflict. Maybe you've been greatly wounded. Uh, maybe you've endured some harsh criticism in the past. Maybe you're emotionally drained, stressed. Where do you go to deal with all those things? Where do you turn when life brings pain, when life brings struggle? Um, for me, you know, I, I think um, when, when God, I felt that the Lord was calling me into full-time ministry, specifically being a pastor. I was like 20 years old at that time. I'd studied tirelessly for several years the Bible, and I felt and still do, I was prepared to do the sermons, 
I love this part. This part, it's not easy, but it comes easy to me because of how much I enjoy it. But what I wasn't, what I wasn't prepared for, what I wasn't prepared for was um, the pastoring of people themselves and how difficult that would be at times. Sometimes the, again, unresolved conflict. Sometimes uh, people I thought were close friends just you know, leaving. Uh, harsh words, or maybe either thrown at me or maybe sometimes given by me. Uh, conflict. Constructive, what's called constructive criticism in the title of the email. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. And so where do you turn? Where do you go? When you feel like lonely or depressed. I'm speaking to myself. Lonely, depressed at times. Or when like the, the work is so taxing and burdensome, it's causing so much stress. I want to do next. Because internally inside of you, you're a people pleaser. And you know that this may or may not work. And what are people going to think of you? So you lie awake at night because of anxiety. Are people going to view me the same way? Am I going to have, lose my reputation? What do you turn to? Who do you turn to? Let me tell you, there, there's, something, there's something better than alcohol. Something better than late night ice cream. There's, there's something better than a, than a paleo cleanse to start your year. There's something better than, than binging Netflix. Where do you go when you're deeply grieving? You go to the man of sorrows who's acquainted with your grief. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He understands what it is to be ridiculed. He understands what it's like to endure slander. In Jesus, we have one who knows human suffering, who personally knows pain. So draw near to him. He understands you. He can identify with you. You are not alone. A third reason the incarnation is significant, uh, imitation. Imitation. One of the wonderful things Jesus becoming a man has actually done for us. I'm so grateful we're on this side of Jesus, on this side of the cross, because one of the wonderful things that Jesus becoming or taking on flesh has done for us is that it has provided a model for us, a pattern on how we should live our lives. And so what should happen as we study the gospel of John together is we should, yes, we should see Jesus. We should then be challenged to follow Jesus. And then as a result of those two things, we should then imitate Jesus. We'll learn how to better be better truth tellers, how to, how to better share the gospel. Through John and looking at Jesus, we're going to learn how to pray better, how to strive towards holiness better, how to persevere in our faith. So as we study John week after week, my challenge to you is just simply this. Look at the life of Jesus. Observe him. Look at his character. Consider his lifestyle. Notice how he was living in the world, but he was not ever of the world. See his compassion. Look at how he loved on people. Look how he lived his life on mission and then aim the direction of your life the same way. 
And if our study of John doesn't make us more like Jesus, something is actually wrong. Something's wrong. Because if we truly see him, if we are truly in awe of him and what he has done, we should become more like him, right? What we behold is what we become. In Jesus' incarnation, we have someone to emulate. We have someone to imitate. And then finally, Jesus becoming flesh carries significance because it gives us something to anticipate. <laughs> Told you I'd give you a few IONs. That doesn't, anticipate doesn't have it. So it brings anticipation. There it is. <laughs> I should have just left anticipate up there to bother. There'd be a quarter of the room that that would really bother. Ah, I should have done it. I missed an opportunity. But it would bother me more, so I couldn't do it. One of the things that should happen as we study John's gospel is that you should long to see him yourself. We weren't there. We weren't there at the first coming of Jesus. We read all these stories of all these people that Jesus impacted, the lives he transformed and changed. We get to read about them. It's an amazing opportunity. But we weren't there at the first coming of Jesus. But Jesus coming back to dwell with his people permanently is coming soon. That's a promise throughout the New Testament, and that reality should fill our hearts with great expectation and anticipation. See, the, the incarnation reminds us that we are actually, right now, we are currently living in between the two arrivals of Jesus. That's where we are today. We are living in the in-between, the two advents, the two arrivals. And if the word came down once, as he promised, we know and can trust that he will make good on his promise to come again a second time. We will see him again. So listen, there is such great hope in that short little phrase that we studied today. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So much hope, so much truth. Someday we will fully see him as he is. And John says, when we see him and as we behold him, we will fall at his feet and all of us will worship him. As we move from John's introduction in the following weeks, let me just encourage you to consider who Jesus is as both God and man, fully God, fully man. Know that because he is both God and man, Know that because he is those things, that he knows you, that he understands you. Know that you can look to him as a perfect example to follow. Know that one day, because he came once, know that one day you will see him face to face. And know that ultimately he came for a purpose. He came to save you. So that you could find life in his name. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this Jesus is full of grace and truth. Nothing, no one compares to him.
Let me pray for you.